The reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I wonder what was the last thing that made you just stop in your tracks and make you think to yourself, wow, what a wonderful world. Well, if your name's Louis Armstrong, you know that it's uh, uh, trees that are green and red roses too. For me, uh, it was probably about a fortnight ago. Uh, because of the action-adventure life that I live, it was down on my allotment uh, one evening. And just seeing the, the, the sky lit up like a fire as the sun set uh, down the A47. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's standing on a snow-capped mountain. Maybe it's the starlit evening on the beach. Maybe it's a bride on a wedding day, a newborn baby, a city lit up at night, or, or more recently for many of us, the sight of loved ones coming to visit us. Wow, what a wonderful world. And that's exactly where Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have left us. A world that we are told God declares to be very good. It's the kind of world you glimpse on nature documentaries and the trailers that they show to get you to watch uh, the shows. You kind of get these amazing shots of bits of the world and things in the world that you and I would never get to see for ourselves to an epic soundtrack. And you're left thinking, wow, what a wonderful world. But it's interesting tonight that nobody ever makes a BBC nature documentary with a trailer like this one. That video's right, isn't it? Uh, because among the wow, what a wonderful world are all too many things that make us think to ourselves, no, things should not be like this. It might be things around the world that we see in our newspapers, uh, hear on the radio, watch on our TV screens that just leave us feeling wrecked. Maybe it's the violence that's going on in Myanmar. The news this week of the discovery of the remains of 215 children in Canada. Maybe it's the growing humanitarian crisis in northern Nigeria, the impact of COVID in India, the tensions that have been going on in the Middle East. But then there's the stuff closer to home, the breakdown of a family relationship. Feeling like you're watching a loved one spiraling out of control into some kind of self-destruction. Or you, you or someone you love is experiencing suffering and you feel helpless to do anything about it. 
It's just, you're going through a season of life where it just feels like you can't sort out your emotions, or when you've experienced being laughed at, discriminated against, or, or when you become aware of the hurt and harm that you've caused. How do we make sense of this tension of, of wow, what a wonderful world? And no, things should not be like this. Do we focus on just one of them? Do we try and downplay both of them? Or can we hold on to both of them at the same time? Well, I think Genesis chapter 3 says, yes, we can and we must. I believe that Genesis chapter 3 is the best explanation for our experience of life in this world. This tension of, of wow, what a wonderful world. And no, things should not be like this. So far in our, our journey through these first three chapters of Genesis, in, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, we've, we've heard that we are, and this world is, brilliantly beautiful. And Genesis 3 means we also have to say that we are, and this world is, badly broken. It might be the best explanation going, in my opinion, but it does come with its challenges, doesn't it? What, what do we make of a talking snake? What do we make of a person talking back to a snake as if they're some kind of character in Harry Potter? And what about this tree, this kind of magic tree with magic fruit? What's going on there? And these challenges mean there are many Christians, many serious, wholehearted followers of Jesus who navigate these things in Genesis 3 by saying this is more of a symbolic story than it is a historical story. And I stand shoulder to shoulder with them in Jesus. But I do think there are problems if we land at that place. See, back in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 4, we begin, this is the account of, this is episode 1 of Genesis, of which chapter 3 is part of it. It seems to be describing real events. When Jesus later on teaches on marriage, he, he speaks of Adam and Eve as though they're real people. And Paul does the same when he compares Adam and Jesus in both Romans and 1 Corinthians. Seems to suggest that Genesis 3 is describing real events. They're more historical than symbolic, but it does use some symbolism. Take verse 1 of our reading. We're told, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We haven't got an elephant in the room, but we do have a talking snake and we do need to talk about it. And I, you know, what was going on in, in this encounter, I don't know. Was there an audible conversation that went on? I don't know. But just the thought of a snake, for me, makes me uncomfortable. And there's a reason I've not put up a picture of a snake on the screens. Uh, because if I had, I'd have gone out of the room by now and I'd be running down, down the road. But even if you are a lover of snakes and all things reptile, a snake in the Old Testament view of the world even though it was a creature created by God, it was about as unclean a creature as you could get. If you were going to look for a creature to stand for an anti-God symbol, then it would be a snake. But Genesis 3 invites us to think that this is more than just the ordinary snake that might make me run a mile. And we're told at the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, this is Satan. This is the devil. He's, he's, he's hiding himself uh, as a snake. Where does the devil come from? Well, you, we can pick up bits and pieces uh, from the Bible. Uh, it seems to imply that the, the devil was someone who was created by God, created good 
an angel created good who rebelled against God. The Bible doesn't spend lots of time kind of explaining the background to it all. The Bible just wants us to be very real that there is this thing, evil, and we will experience it in our, in our lives. Not all our questions about evil and the origin of it are going to be answered, but we do know the devil is, is anti-God, but not in a way that he could ever really take God on. He can't defeat God, but he will and does put every effort into undermining and destroying all that God has made. Just look what he does in our passage. We're still in verse 1. The snake questions what God has said. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What kind of picture is the snake painting of God to the woman? It's a picture that God is harsh and ungenerous. It's just not the picture we've had of God so far. Remember back in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17, we we hear what God says. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's a much bigger picture of a life-giving, generous God. It's a picture of a world of yes with one no. And we might be left asking the question, well, why did God put, put that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there in the first place if he knew this was going to happen? Do you know what? It's a cracking question. And I don't think it's the easiest to answer. But I think one part of an answer to it is that in a world of yes, when there is one no, meant there was a way for Adam and Eve to say to God, we love you. You have given us everything that we need We trust you. And so the woman corrects the snake. But notice that the seed of doubt over God's life-giving generosity has been planted because the woman adds just a little bit extra to what God had said. So we read in verse 3, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. Seed of doubt is put there. And next the, the snake questions, whether God said, what God said would happen will really happen. You won't really die. It's, it's not a big deal. This isn't that bad. Instead, look what you will get, the snake says. You will know things for how they truly are. You will be like God. That's a really stupid thing to say to somebody who has already been made in the likeness of God, but he says it. And it sticks. A picture painted of God again, that he's not loving. Maybe God's some kind of insecure person. He, he doesn't trust you. You're missing out. And one goes for it. She sees the fruit. She takes the fruit. She eats the fruit. She gives some to her husband and he eats it. Notice that Adam is there the whole time. The person that God had directly spoken his commands to stood there, said nothing, and ate the fruit. Okay, it's another question here, isn't there? Isn't knowing what is right and wrong, isn't seeking wisdom a good thing? Doesn't the Bible say that? Well, it does. 
But it also speaks of a wisdom and a knowledge that is God's alone. Just read the book of Job, for example. So we see here, there's nothing magical about the fruit. There's nothing bad about this tree. Instead, it's an action that revealed a deeper attitude going on in these people, in Adam and Eve, wanting to have the wisdom that was rightfully only God's to determine and decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. This is the devastating moment that God's very good creation is undone and tipped upside down. So what do we do with these verses? What do we, what do we take away uh, from these devastating verses? Well, first thing I think is, as I've already uh, said, Genesis 3 explains our experience of life in this world. And we'll be thinking and unpacking this much more in the, next, uh, in the next weeks, particularly next week. But just look where our verses land in verse 7. We're told, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized They were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The instant reaction of the man and woman is to hide, to hide their nakedness from each other. Trust and intimacy and openness were gone in a moment. And doesn't that echo our experience of life? How many of us are able to be fully honest about everything? with everyone how many of us are able to fully trust each other all of us have things we'd rather hide away all of us have locked things in a dark cupboard in our lives things we'd rather people didn't know things in our past things we've thought about uh, things we've said websites we've visited but also those things that have been done to us and things that have been said to us our experience of life is because what happened in Genesis 3 but what happened there doesn't just stay there it comes into our life too this time next week we'll be gearing up uh, for England's first football match in Euro 2020 I'm calling it Euro 2020 I think it's still called that even though it's a year late Uh, playing Croatia I think at Wembley uh, and they will line up they'll play their match and I just want for a moment for us to to imagine that Monday morning England won what are we going to be saying to each other? We're going to be saying, we won. But here's the thing. I wasn't there. I didn't play. You didn't play, unless there's something, somebody in our church community hasn't told me. But yet we will say, we won. Because we're connected in, in this sort of strange way to the England football team. On the pitch, they represent us. And in a much deeper, much more significant way, we too are all connected to Adam. He represents us. Just as my children inherit certain characteristics from me, so we inherit from Adam an attitude that that pushes God out from being in and over our lives so that we can run the show. This is is the heart of sin. Sin is, is not just the ways that we stuff things up. It's not just the ways in which we are wronged by other people. It's the attitude in all of us That's the reason behind those things. Genesis 3 helps us work out what's going on. It explains our experience in life, and sometimes just knowing your bearings helps you. If you're ever caught in an avalanche, 
and you survive and you find yourself sort of in this just whiteness with no sense of what direction is what. Do you know what the first thing you're supposed to do is? Have a little dribble. Why? Because you'll soon learn which way is down. And so you know which way is up and you can start digging. Getting your bearings can be really helpful. Genesis 3 explains life as we experience it in this world. But it also enlarges our view of God's grace. Keep with the picture of being stuck in the big pile of snow and you're having your little dribble. It's now time to dig your way out. Thing is, if you're stuck in an avalanche, it's, it's pretty unlikely you're going to dig yourself out. But sorting out the mess that began in Genesis 3 is, is not just unlikely, it's impossible. All Adam and Eve are able to do is sew together some fig leaves to try and hide from each other. It's like me trying to fix a broken leg with a poor patrol plaster or cure cancer with a box of paracetamol. And yet, we read later on in the Bible, uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, these words, we're told, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, Paul here is talking about Adam and, and what went on in Genesis 3 here, how much more did God's grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? It's comparison between Adam and Jesus. And we, Jesus, we read in the Gospels again and again, spoke how he had come for sinners. Here is the one who is fully divine, without sin, able to save us, yet fully human at the same time, one who could stand in our place and represent us. See, Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the one who was faithful when tempted by the devil. He was the one who was obedient to death, a death that was not his but ours. Here is overflowing generosity that is undeserved, poured out to many. See, if we recognize what's going on in Genesis 3 and just how terrible sin is and the impact in our own lives, we will begin to experience God's grace enlarged in our hearts. Genesis 3. Um, it explains our experience of life. And it, it enlarges our experience of God's grace. And lastly, it equips us to face temptation in everyday life. It's those who follow Jesus we experience God's overflowing grace. We, we know we are forgiven sinners, but the legacy of sin still impacts our lives and the devil will continue to try and tempt us to push God out of our lives. But these opening verses of Genesis chapter 3 are so helpful because we're given the devil's tactics. You see, what the devil will do is he will give you half-truths and empty promises Everything the snake said, do you notice, was half true. That's why it gets to you. God did say something about not eating from a tree. Adam and Eve didn't immediately physically die when they ate the fruit. Their eyes were opened, but just not to what they hoped for. You see, the devil will distort 
God's words. He will say, did God really say? So it's no wonder we read uh, David writing in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. The devil will downplay the consequence of sin. Ah, you're not going to die. You know what? Sin sometimes makes life a lot easier, more comfortable. You get what you want. But it ignores eternity. It ignores the reality of God's justice and judgment. The devil will paint a picture of a harsh, stingy, unloving, insecure, untrusting, ungenerous God. And in these moments, we need to be led to Jesus again. Jesus, the fullest and clearest way God has made himself known. Are any of those things true of Jesus? No, in Jesus, we see a God who is full of truth and full of promises. See, if we want to understand our experience of life in this world, if we want to have a bigger experience of God's grace in our lives, if we want to be equipped to navigate uh, the temptations that we'll face in everyday life we need genesis chapter three let me pray heavenly father reading what happened in those verses is devastating we know what happened then happens in our own lives and yet not because of anything we've done or who we are, you have shown us grace. You have forgiven us. You are equipping us to live as your people. Please, Lord, would you help us to know and experience your grace more and more? Would you help us to live as your people? And Lord, where we do stumble, where our attitudes go wrong, where our words and actions and thoughts are bent out of shape, would you lead us again to the Lord Jesus? the one who came to save sinners, like me. Amen.